Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Jim Marty calling in from beautiful September weather in Denver, Colorado, 76 degrees and not a cloud in the sky. Larry, up in Chicago. Hey, Jim, how are you? Great to hear from you again. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're on a weather roller coaster. Uh, the last day or two, the temperatures dip back down into the 50s, into the 40s at night, uh, giving us just enough of a chill um and so all of a sudden everybody's missing those uh, 80 degree days that a few weeks ago we were complaining about how hot it was but that's okay you know this weather's uh certainly appropriate for this time of year and uh you know it makes me think of sitting outside at football games that aren't being played or at least not being played with fans in the seats but uh you know that's okay we, we get around that we get around live music we find ways to survive right as, as jerry said in uh, touch of gray yep <clears throat> so um What's going on? Um, politics. We had a presidential debate this week. And we um, as I've been saying, um, the word cannabis never came up. Marijuana, cannabis, just a total non-issue in this crazy election year with pandemics and protests and riots and no shortage of issues. But marijuana is not one. I really think cannabis consumption has really just become kind of mainstream where nobody cares about marijuana anymore. You know, Jim, this is a point that you and I have long discussed and we've kind of bemoaned the fact that um, on, on the one hand, it, you know, there's not more attention paid to it. Of course, on the other hand, as, as we've also discussed, maybe that's a blessing in disguise for the industry, depending on how you look at it. Um, but you're, but you're absolutely right. I mean, kind of the glass half full way to look at it. You know, we had a debate last night between two presidential candidates, and I understand both of them had a lot of other issues on their mind. Um, but maybe what's important is that, you know, what are we now from for Colorado 10 years down the road with licensed dispensaries? Um, and nobody's complaining about it. Nobody's saying, oh, my God, we have this marijuana problem out there. We all thought the dispensaries would be a good idea, but they're not. If I'm president, I pledge to shut it all down. Yeah. Well, the two big issues that people were concerned about 10, 7, 8 years ago for adult use, 10 years ago for medical in Colorado, were traffic fatalities and um, you know driving while impaired, uh, but also teenage use. Right. And uh, those two things just have not happened. Um, not to say there isn't teenage use, but it hasn't gone up from the days when it was illegal. Um, and our, as I've mentioned in other shows, our traffic fatalities have stayed very flat, right around 600 a year, um, half of what they were in 2002. We had 1,200 traffic fatalities a year. So, yeah, um, yeah the people looking at Colorado from the outside 
really cannot find a lot to complain about other than the burgeoning tax dollars on $2 billion worth of sales in Colorado. Um, I think we'll see some other states come online in a few weeks, November 3rd. Uh, Arizona will be voting for adult use, and I'm quite sure that will pass. Um, even, I think, uh, Mississippi and or Alabama are both voting for medical cannabis. So um, it really is a national um, movement that we've been part of these 10 years. And it's it's almost, you know, in the rearview mirror now. So just now, which a little bit of cleanup with uh, the few remaining states that don't have some form of legal cannabis and then the federal government coming online to um, normalize banking and taxation of cannabis. Um, really, we're just down to a few loose ends. <clears throat> you know, I think you're right. And um, that's certainly... Uh, you know, very interesting and a, and a, and a great um, endorsement for where we are as a, as a country with the, with the marijuana market these days. Um, and it is exciting to see as we go forward. And, and, you know, it may get to the point where, you know, ultimately none of us really do care what the federal government does because people are, are developing workarounds for banking. They're, they, they have the advantage of working with accountants, you know, Jim, such as yourself and, and the Bridge West group who have, you know, more or less become the experts of, you know, how to handle 280E. And, you know, with that level of expertise, uh, 280E is no longer the formidable hurdle that it used to be. That's not to say that it still doesn't have to be taken seriously, but it does mean that, uh, you know, those of us that practice in that area, you, not me, I uh, have, uh, you know, it, it's not new to you anymore. You know, you've developed an expertise. There's an established body of, of law now. Uh, and within that, you're able to, uh, you know, provide the type of advice that a few years ago uh, was probably just not possible. And, you know, that kind of thing, really really makes a huge huge difference to the point where we can say you know what if it's still illegal it's not such a big deal because uh it keeps the regulators out of our hair which is not sure. and well i'll tell you where that really becomes important and where we really have to be very very careful what we wish for is if we take a look at what's going on with hemp right now and we've talked a little bit about the uh this new uh <laughs> I love it. The DEA's interim final rule on hemp, how something can be interim and final at the same time, I think speaks to the, uh, uh, the, the craziness of the government even addressing it at all the way they do. But this is just the DEA once again waking up every now and then trying to take advantage of what they say is ambiguity in the 2018 Farm Bill uh, in a way to kind of tighten up it, what it, what's otherwise loosening grip on hemp now you know we use the word cannabis in that sentence instead of hemp i think that's where a lot of the trouble comes in because you know the dea like a lot of other people and groups out there don't seem to want to really uh, recognize the, the very clear distinction between marijuana and hemp right so what we do now is we have once again like well, whether it was a 2016 or 17 when the dea came out with their last set of quote-unquote interim rules and they were trying to give cbd its own uh, uh, Controlled Substances Act identification number. Ultimately, the courts told them they couldn't do it. Um, that was in a lawsuit that was that was filed by the Hoban Law Group. Uh, the Hoban Law Group has now filed a lawsuit uh, in the Ninth Circuit again, contesting these newest set of rules. 
uh, and contesting whether the DEA even has the jurisdiction to be able to to even promulgate these rules, let alone uh, try to enforce them in terms of what they're talking about. And it's a really, really for the hemp industry, Jim. And, you know, a lot of people just don't understand and realize that what they've done here uh, is they've they've gone beyond merely counting THC Delta 9 in their calculation for the 0.3 standard that, you know, is the current line on whether you have a legal hemp product or an illegal marijuana product. And before it was 0.3% THC based on Delta 9. Well, what what experts in the industry knew, and many of us have now come to find out, is that there are a number of active cannabinoids in hemp, including, among others, THCA and Delta 8, both of which are not included in the THC measurement previously, um, but both of which, if combusted and smoked upon being burned, they do actually create a, a psychoactive effect, not as significant as Delta 9, um, but psychoactive nonetheless. And a lot of people kind of saw that as a loophole, as a way to sell uh, intoxicating products under the Hemp Act. The DEA has now come back in and said, we mean 0.3% THC on any component of the hemp plant. So now we're talking about THCA, we're talking about Delta 8. All of these would have to be factored in and that would change the nature of the plants that are currently being grown right now um, and, and, and certainly bring down the number of these other constituents uh, that can be allowed to, uh, cannabinoid constituents that can be allowed to exist in the plant if you don't want to lose your entire plant. We have this going on in Illinois right now. I have customers when they drop their seeds in the ground in April, 0.3%. Now they're getting ready to harvest. Boom, there's a new uh, DEA interim rule. And guess what? If you measure their THCA and their Delta-8, they sneak right above 0.3%. That's a problem. Um, the other place where we talk about this being a problem is in the transportation of hemp oil that's being processed. So if you have a hemp plant that is uh, compliant and you uh, extract hemp oil that is compliant, but then you take all the hemp oil and you concentrate it in a uh, huge tanker truck to take it across state lines uh, to another uh, location, uh, we know that in that concentration a state, the THC level can spike above 0.3%. And the way the industry has handled that is by expressly labeling those products in their shipping manifests as being products in process, uh, right, as opposed to finished products uh, with certifications that the plant it came out of uh, was, was legal and that the products that they're going into are legal. And there was some issues with that because law enforcement groups around the country that really weren't hip yet to the rule uh, but had been told something about 0.3%, whether they accepted that or not, the minute they saw anything above 0.3%, they said, well, screw you, we've got you now. Um, and, and, and the industry was pushing back very hard on that. And, you know, instead of helping the industry, the DEA kind of spit in our eye because they have now formally said that, right, if you're shipping that oil and in that concentrated state, even while it's just being shipped and it's product and process spikes above 0.3 during that period of time, you're hauling an illegal product. It can be confiscated. You can be arrested. It, it, this is going to put a serious, serious uh, hurdle in the middle of the cannabis, of the hemp industry and, and the types of products that can now be sold uh, and the way that they can be shipped, the way that they can be manufactured. Um, and it's really going to be a problem. And, you know, this is all um, 
not entirely a result of hemp becoming legal, but certainly with hemp being legal, uh, it has attracted the attention once again of the DEA and the FDA with their food rules and everything else. And it, it, it's so disappointing to see. Um, like I say, the Hoban Law Group is out there filing a lawsuit, working with a couple of other law firms uh, in an effort to try to uh, get these rules either repealed or rolled back uh, as much as possible. Um, and, and why the DEA feels compelled to continue to go after a substance as benign as hemp, right? You know, you and I understand, Jim, that the, the casual listener might not understand really, but you and I understand that if we're talking about a cannabis product that, that's under 1% THC, you know, you're not going to get, might there be somebody with a very sensitive system to whom that might cause a psychoactive effect? I suppose. But to the average person, it's going to be a non-event. You don't feel uh, the psychoactive effect at that level. So we're, we're the, we have the DEA ganging up on a product that's primarily to the extent it's used for human use as opposed to all of its industrial uses is used for healthful purposes and has an exemplary record of, you know, uh, safe, healthful uses. And yet here we have the government focusing its attention on trying to shut this down. It, it, it yeah. makes no sense. No, it doesn't. It, you know, <clears throat> As I said earlier in the show, loose ends. So this is definitely one of the loose ends. Um, I really like to see this move towards what the alcohol industry does, where they test the the final product and not the ingredients going in. So when you bottle a, buy a bottle of wine, you know what the alcohol content is. You know when if you buy a bottle of whiskey, the alcohol content is much higher than a bottle of wine. Uh, but they don't test the grapes and they don't test the barley. Mm-hmm. We are absolutely right. And in this case, you know, even to take a position that a concentrated product, which is a, a natural part of the processing process and which has no intent of ever being sold, to be able to jump in that small little window of the entire processing period and say, aha, we've got you now, is to ascribe to the industry a bad faith motive that's not only unfair, but isn't close to being accurate or true. I think that the members of the hemp industry have bent over backwards to be compliant with the 0.3% rule. And, you know, to the extent that the government wants to say you can't count THCA anymore, you have to count THCA, fine, I guess. You know, that, that's their prerogative to add in. But when you start doing these other kind of rules that will literally shut down transportation of hemp oil, I, I, I just don't know why they're doing it. it, it, it it's, it's unnecessary. It's It's... Um, it's done, I think, for harassment purposes and because they're frustrated of the progress that the cannabis industry is making in this country. Right. I agree. Well, switching over to um, musical subjects, uh, you and I both have, uh, during the past week, checked out Through the Cool Colorado Rain, <clears throat> a wonderful documentary on the history of the Grateful Dead in Colorado. And... Um, Great pictures, great stories, great history. Larry, what was your takeaway? Well, Jim, first of all, let me tell you, having blown the homework assignment the last time you gave me one, I was not about to make that mistake again. So I sat myself down over the weekend and I, and I took in this documentary. And here's what I'll tell you about it. I think that if you are a Colorado person or a deadhead who was at a number of the Colorado shows, it is a tremendous, tremendous resource in terms of giving you uh, a very succinct kind of overview of, of all of the shows that were played in Colorado, uh, a little bit about the um, 
uh, things going on at the time, both socially in, in the in the area as well as musically for the dead. Uh, they take time to kind of point out the highlights of of all of the various uh, sets of shows that they talk about, and I think that the archival footage and the uh, the pictures, you know, for if you're a true deadhead and you love looking at that stuff, you, you can't beat it. Um, my frustration was that I think that they kind of got themselves caught in between, and you know that they could have easily tacked on another 30 minutes. This, this one was just checking in at about 30 minutes. They could have easily tacked on another 30 minutes and spent another five minutes on each of these shows. And it would have been wonderful of all the shows that they went through. Uh, the only ones that I had the pleasure to be at were the Greek, uh, the, the Greek, the uh, Red Rock shows in June of 1984. They were uh, three of the best shows I ever saw leading up to the, the third night, which was, just a uh, an absolutely monumental dead show, uh, uh, the picture of the perfect dead, a, a second set that maybe had six, seven songs tops, uh, mm-hmm. but some of the best jams I've ever heard, and the breakout Dear Mr. Fantasy. Um, and, you know, yet in the, when they got to it, the, 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 1984, the dead broke out Dear Mr. Fantasy, a lot going on in the life of the dead. It was a very exciting year, blah, blah, blah. And then they moved on, and I wanted them to talk about the huge colossal rainstorm of the night before. And and one of the things that was funny, and I had to go back and check this, Jim, but it, it when they flashed a copy of the ticket stubs for 1984 up on the screen, I recognized, you know, the designs that the dead were typically embossing on their tickets at the time. But one thing stood out on me that I had not noticed before, and it said, in case of rain, event to be held at CU Events Center. And I thought, well, where the hell? I ran downstairs. I pulled out my ticket stub collection. Sure enough, it's on there. The second night of the three-night run, it rained, it hailed, it poured. Nobody came to us and said anything about going to the CU Events Center. We all stood outside all night in that torrential downpour, saw a tremendous show. But I got a real kick out of that, wondering, boy, if that's not enough rain to move you over, uh, I don't know what is. <clears throat> that was interesting. Um, how many of those Grateful Dead shows in Colorado involved rain, yes. even up to most recently, the last time they played at CU Boulder with Dead and Company, um, and John Mayer, they had a tremendous rainstorm the right. first night uh, at, at Boulder the summer of 2019. So yep. rainstorms and Grateful Dead concerts seem to go hand in hand here in Colorado. But yeah, I, a lot of memories for me. Red Rocks 83 was, you know, my, my first Grateful Dead show in Colorado. Um, I was at the Telluride shows in 1987. <clears throat> Great, wonderful shows in Telluride. Well, I'll tell you about Telluride because a group of us had thought about going out there. But what they did in Telluride was a masterful job of marketing, right? And they were telling people, if you don't have tickets, they won't even let you into the town. Don't come out here. And we all thought, you know what? We don't need the hassle. We're not going. We don't have tickets. I'm not going to go out there and fight with the with the locals. And I think they did a very good job of controlling the crowd flow to Telluride that year. They did because there's, a, you know, Telluride's in, in, at the dead end of a box canyon. So there's only one way in and one way out. So mm-hmm. it was easy to control. But those were wonderful shows. I think in prior shows, that was my one of my best Grateful Dead experiences, um, sure. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at Red Rocks, drive to Telluride on Friday for Saturday and Sunday shows in, in Telluride. Wonderful times. Doesn't uh, get much better. Mickey Hartletter procession down Main Street, 
it was a harmonic conversion of a lining up of the planets and some of the uh, the dancers from Prince Onatunja's Drums of Passion ended up in our condo. So, <laughs> crazy wild times. I'm sure there's a good story behind that one. Oh, yeah. Crazy very wild good. times. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but I enjoyed that documentary very much. I agree yeah. with you that it could have been at least another half hour and expanded out a little bit. But um, wonderful photos, yep. some video, um, just a – Amazing how many times the Grateful Dead played in Colorado in, in their history. And, and it goes on to this day with, uh, you know, shows back in the football stadium with Dead and Company. Well, look, we've, we've all known that Colorado has always been a magnet, right? As I recall, although I, I don't hold myself out as quite as much of an aficionado on fish history, but as I recall, I, I, I've seen a live album from fish in, in Colorado in 1988. My understanding, it was one of the first major states outside of Vermont that they ever played in, or at least out of the Northeast. Yes. There's a famous photograph of Trey and uh, Paige. I think it's Paige, or maybe it's Mike Gordon. No, I think it's Paige uh, carrying um, Paige's keyboard across the street in Telluride. I don't know if you've ever right. seen that picture. I have but, seen that um, picture. That was a year after the dead. Um, and yeah, that was a, the story there was they ran out of money and, only had enough money for gas and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all the way back to Vermont. So, but, you know, but I love the fact that, you know, there's this, this history of bands coming to Colorado to really, uh, you know, kind of expand themselves out. And one of the things you and I talked about on the pre-show uh, that I, that I really appreciated about that uh, documentary was, you know, if, I can I can always learn something new every time. And, and one of the things that I found fascinating, and this was based on the detail they provided, was that the very first shows that the dead played in Colorado were at a, uh, uh, a, a branch of the family dog that had been established by Chet Helms and his crew out in California uh, as a uh, regular venue in which the dead played um, over, over on the Great Highway along the, uh, the ocean there. And uh, I had no idea that there was ever a family dog that had been in Denver, let alone that the dead had played there. And uh, I, I found that to be very cool. Yes, I was wondering what the address was of that, if the building is still there. I'm, I'm sitting in downtown Denver right now as we speak. I could drive by and check it out if, it's, if I knew the address. So, um, well, that's all very interesting. Uh, we still have a little bit of time left. We could touch on the... 50th anniversary of um, American Beauty being released uh, this week, 50 years ago. Um, I'm old enough that I remember driving around in the car with my parents. I wasn't old enough to drive, but hearing trucking on the radio uh, way back in 1970, 71 as a eighth and ninth grader. Sure. I think that, uh, you know, off of that album, certainly Sugar Magnolia and Trucking were songs that you would hear on the radio, Friend of the Devil, uh, you know, used to get a decent amount of airplay. Um, but, you know, it, it, in my in my pre-dead days, it was just, you know, songs that I identified with the band uh, and, and not really a whole lot more to it, although they did eventually set the foundation for me becoming a deadhead uh, and, and getting into the space. And uh, uh, the first show I ever went to, uh, The Grateful Dead did play truck and to close out the first set. And uh, my buddy who had taken me to the show was very excited for me because they were actually playing a so song that I knew. Um, 
but it, it's hard to believe that 50 years has gone by since American Beauty came out. Um, and and what, it, what it requires us to do, Jim, is to really, you know, take a minute and, and look at this album and just appreciate how magnificent it is. And by saying that, I don't mean to diminish Working Man's Dead, which came out at the same time, and I think out of the same creative streak uh, as the boys broke away from their hardcore psychedelic uh, persona and became more of a uh, uh, Americana type of band, if you will. Um, but what what we saw on American Beauty and Working Man's was the beauty for the first time really to experience the beauty of Robert Hunter's lyrics and Garcia's ability and we're to put music to these tunes in a way that most people could appreciate. You know, your, your average deadhead, I think will tell you, Oh man, I love Oxymox. I love Anthem of the sun, but I don't think that your average person off the street, if you sat down and started playing the Anthem of the sun would sit through the entire album. You have to really have a, uh, an interest, a hard interest in the dead and in that period of their time and that way they played music. But I would be willing to bet that, you know, uh, putting on American Beauty uh, could fit in just as nicely as all the Beatles music we always hear Elevator or, you know, public, you know, in, in public settings. It's, it's, it's a beautiful album. Every single song on that album stands alone uh, in, in its own right as being a, uh, a special song. You know, any one of these songs, if you heard any of them at a concert, it automatically made the concert better. And if you heard more than one of them, uh, you know, it, it, it really put it over the top. And what, what the dead are going to do is they're releasing their 50th and they've been doing this with all of their albums as they get to this stage. So they're going to be releasing their special 50th anniversary of American beauty uh, with all sorts of great information and other stuff. Um, but what I'm really excited about is that along with it, uh, if you order it, they're also releasing uh, two additional discs would make up the entirety of a show that the band played on February 18th, 1971 at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, uh, which before the pandemic had kind of become Phil's home away from home, uh, where he had been going back and playing a lot of shows again. But the Dead used to play there quite a bit in the early 70s. Um, and what makes that uh, February 18th show stand out, and there's a number of things, but it was the first show ever for some tunes that are that formed the backbone of, of the Dead uh Canon of Songs, Wharf Rat, Playing in the Band, Bertha, Greatest Story Ever Told, and Loser were all broken out that night for the first time ever, along with the dead also playing St. Stephen and Dark Star, which, you know, I think if you're trying to look for something that would say, where's a real crossroads in the dead career, that show has to be it because you, you've got the old psychedelic part of it, but here they are, you know, showcasing and displaying some new tunes that are all wonderful, but not the kind of tunes that you would have found on Aksamaksa or on uh, Anthem of the Sun. Yes, and some of the documentaries, the, I forget the fellow's name at Warner Brothers, was so happy with Working Man's Dead and American Beauty because he said, finally, we have some three and four minute songs we can play on the radio. Exactly. Exactly. Right. That, which is, which is great. You know, when you listen to these songs and they are, you know, the, the quote unquote, you know, radio or, or record version of them. Um, and, and, I, and I will just tell you in passing, if, if, if you've never heard it, it, it never came out on an album, but they released it on a 45. Um, and you can sometimes pick it up in other collections is the radio version of Dark Star. Hmm. And you have to hear it. It's about three and a half minutes long. 
it just rolls right along. It's 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 very funny to listen to. Um, interesting. The other thing about this show uh, that that's that's really interesting is that Ned Logan sat in on them to to play piano all night. Ned had been, played the piano on the Candyman recording on American Beauty, and he actually sat in with the band that night. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting the show to listen to because I've been told uh, that his presence can be heard. Um, you know, and that was during a period of time when uh, I don't think Pigpen had quite yet started his downward spiral. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, to be able to get somebody like Ned in, who's probably a little bit more of a classical pianist, probably paved the way ultimately uh, for a guy like Keith Gauchow, who then, you know, subsequently came in after Pigpen uh, was gone um, and, and really brought a classical piano sense to the Grateful Dead throughout the 1970s. Very good. Yeah, very interesting. You know, speaking of the Dead's old psychedelic days, did you know that Viola Blues is a cover? Here's something that's fascinating. Yes, and, and, I, and I think I had known that because I had been listening to it for a while. But think about this. On the Grateful Dead's first album, the one that opens with The Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion. Right. The very It has Morning to it. That song has like nine or ten songs on it. The only songs that are original Grateful Dead compositions are Golden Road and Cream Puff War. And Cream Puff War was written entirely by Jerry, including the lyrics, no Robert Hunter contribution. But every other song on that first album, Cold Rain and Snow, Morning Dew, songs that we think of as being, you know, standard classic Grateful Dead songs are, in fact, cover tunes. Yes. Uh, we only figured that out. Um, we were listening to Viola Lee Blues at the house, and I wanted to check out the lyrics. I went to my Grateful Dead song book, yep. Annotated, and it's not there. Right, exactly so, right. Uh, my wife looked it up on her phone, and it was written like in 1925, and I forget yep. the man's name, but it was an old um, black blues singer from the South, I would imagine. Yep. Maybe I'll do a little research on that for next week's show. Well, that would be great. And and uh, Viola Lee Blues is a special song. Years ago, uh, they released a CD called uh, From the Fill Zone, and it was a random collection of about nine or ten different live recordings of, of particular songs that Phil had picked and put onto one album. And one of them was a version of Viola Lee Blues. And in the liner notes, Phil talks about how, you know, in the early years of the dead, that was their jam vehicle, that tune, you know before playing in the band, before a lot of those songs, when they were looking for a song they could just play and stretch out, it was, in fact, Viola Lee Blues. And, you know, on some of those versions, they stretch it out 15, 20 minutes, uh, you know, for a song that has very, very few lyrics, uh, but a very distinctive uh, sound and melody. But but here's, I think, a, a, an indication of the importance that it had in the Dead catalog. Uh, in, in the late 1990s, you know, Phil Lesh uh, had to have his liver transplant um, because of his hepatitis and his other uh, conditions, which he was able able to do and uh, gradually brought himself back to health and got to the point where he was ready to come back to live performances again. And so he planned his first live performance post all of this to be at the, um, uh, oh goodness, I can't think of the name of it now, in San Francisco, the really fancy place, uh, the, the uh, not the Fillmore, um, I'll think of the name of it in a minute, but uh, uh, the Warfield, the Warfield Theater. And uh, 
with Fish as his backing band. Um, although I don't know if people knew that Fish was going to be his backing band in the show. It's, I have a tape of it. The show starts with Phil and his two young sons, Graham and the other one, who are now regular members of, of his band. And they came out in front and they sang, Hello, Old Friend, a cappella, brought the crowd down, you know, in tears and everything. They finish, the curtain goes up, and Phil and Fish jump into a 45-minute Viola Lee blues that's unlike anything I've ever heard before. And I'll find my copy of it and send it over to you. You can also probably pull it down off of YouTube. Uh, yes. from, uh, Phil's return, Viola Lee Blues with Fish. It's just, if you're looking for a great version of it, that's it. Excellent. Well, um, I see we're coming to the end of our time slot. Um, I will uh, do a little research on Viola Lee Blues for our next week's show. And um, this is uh, Jim Marty from Denver, Colorado, saying over and out until next time. Larry? Jim, thanks again as always. It's uh, it's always the highlight of my week to be able to sit down and, and spend a few minutes with you talking about the Grateful Dead and uh, and marijuana, and this week was no different, especially uh, getting to talk about an album like American Beauty that for so many deadheads, I'm sure, really you know, was their gateway drug, if you will, into the, into the band. Um, but otherwise, yes, I will look forward to speaking with you next week. Uh, there's always a hope we'll know more here in Illinois. Um, but if not, we'll keep our fingers crossed and see where it gets us. To everyone, have a good week. Stay healthy. Uh, enjoy your marijuana responsibly. And thank you for listening. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your canna confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.